0: Power. I'm Roberto, and I'm Brendan, and together, we're ranking the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin. This week, Yaroslav the Wise.
1: In Russian, Yaroslav Mudry. We have some announcements to make. First of all, we would like to thank our newest patrons, Duke Sarah of Gizhel, Defender of the H, and Duke Halley of Pushkin, lead advisor to Nicholas II and head of the Cossack Detectives. You two are amazing people, and thank you so much for the support you have given us. Like Duke, Sarah, and Halley, you too can support us on Patreon to get access to upcoming bonus episodes, especially the one coming next month about the father of Russian literature himself, Alexander Pushkin. The link to the Patreon is in the episode description. Before we jump into today's episode... We want to let you know about Grand Dukes of the West, a podcast that takes a look at the history of Burgundy, you know, the place with the nice wines. Nothing on Georgian wine, but still, it's a great podcast, check it out. And here is their trailer.
2: Hello, welcome, and bonjour. My name is Josh Zucker, and I want to take you on a journey through some of the most exciting events of the late Middle Ages. Valois Burgundy was one of the medieval world's greatest polities and its legacy can still be felt today. Its dukes inherited, conquered, and politicked their way into forging a state between the German Empire and the Kingdom of France that rivaled them both. From the Hundred Years' War to Hanseatic merchants, from urban workers to Joan of Arc, and from gallant knights to gunpowder weapons, the Grand Dukes of the West had a part to play in almost all of Western Europe's biggest developments in the 14th and 15th centuries. If you want to learn more about the glamorous rise and dramatic fall of the Valois Dukes of Burgundy, please join me for Grand Dukes of the West, a history of Valois Burgundy.
1: I've really enjoyed listening to their podcast, and Josh is very passionate and informative about the history of Burgundy, which is often overshadowed by their neighbor, France. So go ahead and check him out
0: now. Huh. That's kind of funny, because... My most recent immigrant ancestor to the United States was from Burgundy.
1: Well, it's a great time to check out, you know, the history of the area. They do like the the Grand Duchy of Burgundy, but after, so it's like a set time period. So it won't be too recent, but he's doing a great job with that. Sounds cool. Yeah. So we are doing Yaroslav. But before we officially start with Yaroslav, I want to wish you guys all a happy old New Year's. I want to wish you guys a happy old New Year's because this episode will will release on January 14th and on the Julian calendar slash Orthodox calendar, that is old New Year's. Technically, this is the first podcast of the Julian
0: calendar. Whoa. Nice. Yeah. Did anything release? Is anything going? Nothing's going to release during Hanukkah because we're because it is currently Hanukkah or Chanukkah, whatever you want to call it now as we record this. But it's, I mean, it's going to be very much over by the time this releases
1: yes so no hol- we're, we're working on the holidays but we're not releasing on the holidays
0: because mm-hmm.
1: i have spent three days doing research for five different rulers so i'm ahead for once in my life
0: nice we should do an episode about the history of judaism in russia
1: i think i have some people who we can bring on to talk about that actually
0: yeah um there's one guy on youtube i, f- I really forget his name right now sam Arono on youtube makes really great, interesting videos on the history of Judaism in different parts of the world. Well, let's see if we can get Sam Arano on the show then. Yeah, why not? Let's try it out later.
1: Alrighty, so um, Brendan, what do you remember about our last ruler, Sviatopolk, the Accursed?
0: I remember he wasn't really good. He wasn't too good at the whole being prince thing. If I recall correctly, he's accursed because... He needed the King of Poland to get anything done? I remember that. Uh,
1: he's accursed because he killed his brothers and made them into Russia's first saints.
0: Oh, right. Yeah.
1: That's basically most of his reign is, you said it, he ran to the King of Poland for
0: help. I forgot all about that. Well, yeah, it's been a while. I remember it because of that painting we showed, which was cool. I like that painting. Mm-hmm. That was a nice painting.
1: Uh, just to quickly recap, I so the book the Accursed. Essentially, he killed Boris Glyab and his... Uh, Brothers, Fiatoslav in a series of different events, where none of his assassins actually got the job done, it was other people. And then he was named the accursed because he killed Boris and Gleb. And then Yaroslav was like, uh "I don't want to be killed, so let me go fight you." Uh, Yaroslav beat him back, and then he took he he went to his father-in-law, the Duke of Poland, Boleslav the First, who later becomes King of Poland, and then came back, kicked Yaroslav's butt, and then became prince again. But then Yaroslav came back. After Polk had an argument with the king of Poland, and then Polk got beaten up, and then he died on the way back to Poland. We scored him pretty highly. He was like a 46, but he still did not get sent to the Kremlin.
0: Yeah, I can't. I can see why.
1: Yeah, but anyways, that's the recap over. Let's talk about the etymology, because this is a newer name that we haven't had before. Actually, we've had a combination of both of these words in different names. We've had Yaroslav.
0: Yeah. so um, we've had Yaropolk and Sviatoslav. Yep. So basically, and Yaroslav. This is this is the first Yaroslav. Oh wait, this is Yaroslav. Oh right, right. The last guy was Sviatopolk, right? Sorry.
1: Yeah. So that's so then we switch it up to Yaroslav, and the name Yaroslav comes from two terms meaning Yari and Slav, which each means bright and glory. However, Yaro comes from the Proto-Slavic deity of the sun named Yarilo, which would make his name mean glory to the sun, or in a more Christian version that it probably came from, it would mean the fervent worship of God. Thank you, Wikipedia.
0: Interesting. The, this guy's name is literally Praise the Sun.
1: Praise the Sun! <laughs> <laughs> oh! So, are you ready to dig into this guy's life? Let's go. All righty. So, like the last few rulers, his birth is also in a place of confusion. It's stated that he may be the son of Rognieta or even the son of Anna Porfirogenita. Here's the fun part. The chronicles have him listed under Rognieta, but the historians I have been reading report that he may have been one of Vladimir's later children under the analysis of his remains, meaning his mother may as well have been Anna Porfirogenita. We don't know who to believe, but since... His involvement with the Byzantines suggests that he may be Anna's son, because he can use that to kind of have better relations with the emperor. For the sake of the show, he's going to be named Anna Porfirogenita's Genita's son. Yaroslav was born around 988 and was immediately placed as the prince of Rostov by his father, where he grew up learning how to rule from his retainers and advisors. However, with the death of his brother Vyacheslav in 1010, Yaroslav was transferred from Rostov to rule in Novgorod. This is when his true reign starts as he was now considered old enough to rule in his own right. He decided to leave his mark on the land and founded a new town on the banks of the Volga River. What do you think he decided to call the town, Brendan?
0: Okay, what's on the Volga River? A lot. Did he name it Yaroslavia?
1: Actually, very close. He named it Yaroslavl, which means Yaroslavs. Literally just Yaroslavs. (laughs) (laughs) And it is a city that is currently still standing today around the Golden Ring around Moscow which is just a bunch of the old capitals of the regions of Rus. Uh, anyways, that digression is over. Despite his title as the new Prince of Novgorod, which should have cemented his position as the presumptive heir to the throne of Kiev, relations became strained between Yaroslav and his father Vladimir when it became known to him that the Grand Prince intended to make his son Boris the heir to the Kievan throne. Enraged, Yaroslav refused to send his yearly tribute of 2000 hryvnia to his father.
0: Uh-oh. That's not good.
1: Oh, yeah. Vladimir was incensed over his son's insubordination and prepared an army to go to war against Novgorod.
0: Oh, nice family.
1: I know, right? Not not even a, hey, let's talk about it. It's, no, mm-hmm. war. But you, you know Vladimir. He's not great. <laughs> hmm So Yaroslav, her, you know, receiving news of his father's preparations, called across the Baltic Sea to Scandinavia, where he hired an army of Varangians to assist him in his battles since he feared his father's battle prowess. The Varangians, however, as we noted back in Vladimir's episode, tended to be more of a nuisance and an aid if they remained still for too long. And they were quite chaotic in Novgorod, causing a whole slew of problems for the natives of the city. Because they started fights with native men, they harassed the women, and just stole a bunch of things from the people. <laughs> the Novgorodians had had enough of these foreign mercenaries, and a group of the elites of the city came together and entered the Varangian marketplace with a mob behind them and slaughtered a bunch of the Varangians.
2: Wow,
0: again, not even in just like, we demand you leave, it's uh, just killing all of them.
1: Yeah, and they're just doing it from the get-go. It's not even like, hey, leave, it's just, no, we're going to kill them because they don't belong here and they keep messing things up for us. And this, of course, outraged Yaroslav, who went to his castle in Rakom right on Lake Ilmien. From this position of safety, he sent messengers to Novgorod requesting that the elites of the city who had murdered the Varangians appear before him and explain themselves. They arrived at the castle, ready to give their reasoning, but Yaroslav had them arrested and promptly executed. That same night, Yaroslav received a letter from his sister Predslava, alerting him to the death of their father Vladimir and the murder of their brother Boris at the hands of Sviatopolk, along with Sviatopolk's capture of the Kievan throne. She continued on, letting him know that Sviatopolk now planned to kill Glieb, and that he should keep his guard up in case Sviatopolk attempted to murder him too. Yaroslav dropped the letter and sat down, grieving for the loss of his father, his brother Boris, and most importantly, the Varangians who had perished needlessly. The following day, Yaroslav sent a message to Gleb that he should not head to Kiev, lest he be killed by their brother Sviatopolk, because their father was now dead and his life was more important. Liam did not listen and kept going downriver where he was murdered by his own chef.
0: (laughs) That's such a stupid way to go.
1: (laughs) This is a saint where you're laughing at.
0: It's, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Whatever. I'll I'll go do penance. I'll go do penance another time. Grant, you know, that's probably not the dumbest way a saint has died. There's definitely saints that have, like, I don't know, gotten drunk and fallen off the castle walls. I mean, more than likely. Mm.
1: Well, Yaroslav collected his men around Novgorod and spoke to them, and lamented to them, and endeared them by calling him his Druzhina, his faithful warriors, and apologized for needing to kill the elite to uphold the law. He then told them about the death of Vladimir, along with the murder of Boris and Gleb, and how Sviatopolk had taken the throne that was rightfully his all along, his being Yaroslav's, and then he beseeched them to pledge to fight for him. The Novgorodian stood there, staring up at Yaroslav, quite speechless. There was a shuffle here, a movement there, and then you heard a clearing of a throat. Yaroslav waited for a bit, waited, and then added that they would be paid out of the spoils of victory.
0: <laughs> yeah!
1: <laughs> Literally what happened, actually. <laughs> He then said once they won, he would write a few charters confirming the rights and privileges of the Novgorodians, and this ensured that they remembered their duty to the Prince of Novgorod, now that their pockets would be a bit heavier on the walk back home. I would like to mention here that even the promise of being paid from the spoils of war said much to the respect that the Novgorodians held for Yaroslav, because Sviatopolk, if you recall, had to bribe his troops to do almost everything while well, Yaroslav could merely promise them something for their participation.
0: I mean, bribery is a strong word. There's been multiple cases throughout history where soldiers have refused to fight because they weren't paid.
1: Well, you know, the Novgorodians are like, you know, okay, the promise of pay is fine. Sviatopolk's people in Kiev are like, you need to pay us. There's a difference.
0: It's It's a level of respect, you know? Right, but nobody fights for free. This whole idea that people fight for the glory of god or whatever even the templars the 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 first crusade was an opportunity for everybody who went to fight to make their fortune so it as it were well he
1: promised them the spoils of war so that's still payment enough for mm-hmm.
0: them yeah that's the point spoils of war
1: yep he collected his Novgorodian and the remainder of his varangian troops and made his way down to kiev to face his brother Sviatopolk and Yaroslav's forces met on the opposite sides of the Dnieper River, close to the town of Lübeck. We went into this in detail already, so I'm just going to skim right through this, if that's fine with you. Mm -hmm. They stared at each other for three months, you know, all hearts and eyes, totally, not daggers, and to the point that the river started freezing in front of them. Then, in the cover of the night, Yaroslav's forces made their way across the nearly frozen Dnieper River towards Sviatopolk's encampment, and managed to disembark successfully. The battle started, and the carnage was terrible, and ended with Yaroslav's men driving Sviatopolk's troops into the nearly frozen river, with the weight of all the men breaking the ice and causing them to drown within it. Yaroslav had won the battle, but Sviatopolk had fled from the field and made his way to Poland. With his brother now gone, Yaroslav marched towards Kiev and easily took it for himself, much to the glee of the Kievan denizens, and sat down on the Kievan throne.
0: Was Sviatopolk not as popular as Yaroslav?
1: Sviatopolk was not popular at all. There was a reason he's called the Accursed.
0: Okay, but there's a lot of kinslaying that goes on. What what else did people hate him for? Did he have bad tax policy or something?
1: Honestly, I think it was just for, you know, murdering his brother. because it, was it wasn't just it was in the field or in battle. It was just like
0: murder at, for, for murder's sake. I don't know. I find that kind of hard to believe. People do that to their siblings and their families all the time
1: well there is something we will talk about in kompromat so we'll get there okay okay so this was a short-lived peace, though as Sviatopolk had returned with his father-in-law Boleslav the brave of poland duke then later king and his army and they took the fight to yaroslav yaroslav mustered his forces and varangians and went to meet his brother in battle once more they were caught unawares by the polish army and were overrun Yaroslav fled to Novgorod and started making preparations to flee Kievan Rus completely and go to Sweden.
0: You mean flee Kiev or you mean Russian, Russian Ukraine? What do you mean?
1: Kiev and Rus is just like the whole like territory is what it's called.
0: Okay. I thought referred to the ethnic group.
1: No. So the Kiev and Rus uh, is not the whole like region. Um, mm-hmm. we, we just now call them the Rus now at this point. Okay. So uh, Yaroslav's retainers had something else to say though. His cousin Constantine the son of Dobrinja, Vladimir's advisor and uncle, found out about Yaroslav's plans and ordered the prince's boat destroyed. He approached with the rest of Yaroslav's retainers and told the prince he would not be allowed to leave since they knew he could lead them to certain victory against Boloslav and Sviatopolk if given one final chance. Yaroslav kind of stood there, waited, and waited some more, hoping they would leave, but they didn't, so he finally agreed and his retainers set out to collect money from the populace. And with this, they sent for help from King Olaf skotkonung of Sweden to recruit more mercenaries from him.
0: Hmm. Could we do... This is the time we cross over with um, the flat pack history of Sweden, I guess.
1: It is. It really is. Um, and this is King Olaf the Swede, for short. But I like saying Olaf skotkonung because it's more fun.
0: Hmm. Olaf the Swede. Um, I don't think that was his name in his native Sweden. I think he was probably called something, uh, less, less generic.
1: Like Olaf Scott Koning?
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm calling him. So there we go. In the meantime, back down in Kiev, Boleslav and Sviatopolk had a falling out, leading to the withdrawal of Polish troops from Kiev, leaving Sviatopolk with Justice Druzhina R- and Pecheneg forces.
0: What did he do to insult his father-in-law again?
1: I think they just had an argument about something, and then Bolislav just literally took pieces of, like, land and a bunch of people with him, and even, like, took Predslava with him back to Poland, so as, like, a concubine. All right, then. Yeah, we talked about this last time, I know it's been a
0: while. Yeah, no, I don't remember any of this.
1: No worries. Sensing this advantage, Yaroslav made his way south to face his brother despite not having the polish army Sviatopolk held fast and was resistant to his brother's military but was ultimately defeated and fled to poland dying along the way from his wounds so now we enter yaroslav's rule are you ready
0: yeah and glib is still around right glib is dead okay so he has his he has no living siblings besides his sister
1: well we'll get to that
0: okay well you're you're
1: actually he has more siblings to deal with now god
0: Oh, yeah, because Vladimir the Great had hundreds of concubines.
1: Yep. (laughs) Yaroslav settled once more in Kiev, and to reward his Novgorodians, he confirmed the charters he promised them originally. And with this, he set up the foundations for the rise of the Republic of of Novgorod. Republic? Oh, yeah. So in the future, there's going to be this thing up in the north called the Republic of Novgorod. And this is the foundations for that.
0: Uh, My understanding was that republics were not monarchies.
1: We'll get to that (laughs) in the future, but we'll get to it. Wiping off the sweat from his forehead and now crowned as the Grand Prince, Yaroslav sent messages to King Olaf Skorkonung of Sweden, and together they agreed on the Grand Prince's marriage to his daughter, Princess Ingegird, Olaf's daughter. Ingegird arrived in Kiev and was baptized as Irina and wed to Yaroslav. As a present, Yaroslav gifted her the lands of Ladoga and its adjacent territories, and it was renamed to Ingria, which is probably a corruption of her name. So, in- Ingria Ingegird kind of sounds the same stuff like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I get it. In turn,
1: Ingigerd placed her father's cousin, Jarang von Ulfson, to rule the territory in her stead, and this was a good marriage for Yaroslav because it hadn't even been a year when Yaroslav's first son would be born in 1020. What do you guess that son's name is?
0: Uh, Vladimir. You are correct. It is Vladimir. <laughs> Man, I'm sure, I guess, well, he got over his beef with his dad then. Good for him, I guess. But his dad didn't really do much because all he did was, there's no reconcile on his deathbed. Reconciliation on his deathbed.
1: No, everyone was far away. Only yeah. Seattle Puck was close and because he was in prison. So <laughs> there's that. However, the peace did not last long as well because Yaroslav's nephew, Brakislav, the prince of Polotsk, decided to swing his big sword at a place called Novgorod and raided it, capturing quite a few denizens and items and took it back to Polotsk. Yaroslav had none of this and sent an army to fight Brakislav, who was promptly defeated at the Sudoma River. Brakislav fled back to Polotsk, leaving behind all his acquired goods from Novgorod, and was followed by Yaroslav. Upon cornering his crafty nephew, Yaroslav stripped him of most of his territory, leaving him with only the cities of Vitebsk and Ustviat. Briakislav would continue being a nuisance to Yaroslav for the rest of his life till his death in 1044, but was very much cowed into submission by this initial fight. For future reference, remember the Prince of Polotsk. It'll come back up again. Okay. While Yaroslav was busy with his nephew, his brother, Mstislav, was flexing his muscles. Mstislav, the prince of tumatarakan went southwards along the eastern Black Sea coast and brought the fight to the Circassians, where he met with the prince of the Circassians, named Rededya. Rededia did not want to waste the lives of his men and offered to fight Mstislav in a single duel, with Rededya promising the control of his land, people, wife, and children to Mstislav, and Mstislav doing the same to Rededia. So they agreed to the terms and before the battle began, Rededia tossed his weapons to the side wanting to face Mstislav in hand-to-hand combat. This was also agreeable to Mstislav who did the same and they began their match. These two bears of a man gripped on each other's bodies and held each other in various positions with lots of grunting and movement. The wrestling match was violent and long, but Mstislav grew more and more exhausted compared to Rededia who was barely breaking a sweat. Mrs. Slav prayed to the Tokos, promising in exchange for her aid in this battle, he'd build a church in her honor. A newfound energy surged through Mrs. Slav, and then he had an RKO out of nowhere! With the prince of the Circassians down on the ground, Mrs. Slav drew the blade he had hidden within his pants and stabbed it into the heart of Rededia. He arose from the ground and looked around to see his men and the Circassians. Now he held control of the Circassian territory, as well as Rededia's wife and children, and imposed tribute upon them. When he returned to Tumoturakon, he founded the Church of the Theotokos to complete his promise to the Virgin Mother.
0: Uh, what is the Theotokos?
1: The... the god birther. Okay. Yeah, I'm just trying to not say Virgin Mother 800 times. Mm-hmm. With the Circassians and the remnants of the Khazars under his control, Mislav went to the Severians and diplomatically brought them under his fold. They knew which way the winds were blowing and would prefer not to be conquered. With his own forces and his tributaries bolstering his army, Mstislav began the march to Kiev and to claim the throne for himself. In the meantime, Yaroslav was back in Novgorod, resting after his battle with Bryakislav, and was incensed that his brother Mstislav was bringing another conflict to his doorstep. Things weren't going Mstislav's way, though. He arrived to Kiev, and the Kievans actually denied him entrance into the city. Not wanting to tear the capital to pieces in an effort to besiege it, he went to the northwest, crossed the Dnieper river and found a very defensible location and thought, I'm going to build my own Kiev with blackjack and hookers. This new settlement he named Chernigov and added to Yaroslav's headache because this was much closer to Kiev than Tmutarakan ever would be. Realizing what was happening, Yaroslav asked his brother-in-law, King Anu Jakob of Sweden, for his support because Olaf Skorkunin had died like a few years before. Anunda arrived with his Varangian forces and together they marched southwards to Mstislav where they met at the town of Listven. Mstislav was prepared for the battle and he placed the Severians in the center opposite of Yaroslav's Varangian force and his own retainers were placed on the flanks. Darkness fell and the light of the moon disappeared behind a sea of dark clouds. A peal of thunder roared through the sky and lightning flashed quickly illuminating the battlefield as rain poured down. Oh. Mrs. Slav looked from side to side at his retainers and merely said and so it begins With another peal of thunder the order was given for the attack to begin The forces of Mrs. Slav and Yaroslav locked in combat Severians and Varangians hacking each other to death However, the Varangian and Novgorodian forces were being overrun their vision hampered by the rain and darkness and Yaroslav and anun Jacob were forced to retreat from battle. King Anun Yakov fled back to Sweden, not wanting to be involved in a squabble, and Yaroslav returned to his keep in Novgorod. The following morning the sun shone on the battlefield, and Mstislav inspected the slaughter and with a smile looked at his men, saying, Who does not rejoice at this spectacle? Here lies a Savarian, and here a Varangian, and my retainers are unharmed. In Novgorod, a message arrived to Yaroslav from Mstislav who told the Grand Prince that Kiev would be his to keep, but that Cherningov would remain under the control of Miseslav from that point on. Yaroslav refused to return to Kiev unless he could be sure that this wasn't a ruse from his brother. However, upon returning to Kiev, he was greeted by Ingigerd, holding his second son, Izyaslav. Yaroslav remained in Novgorod for the next two years, where he slowly replenished his forces and made his way back down to Kiev in 1026, where he met with Miseslav in the town of Gorodietz. There they came to a true agreement. They would divide Rus' between the two of them, with Yaroslav retaining control of Novgorod and Kiev, and everything west of the Dnieper River, while Mstislav would retain Chernigov and everything east of the Dnieper River. This was agreeable to the both of them, but Yaroslav remained in Novgorod, refusing to leave as he didn't know what machinations Mstislav would get up to. This brought peace to the immediate Rurikid dynasty, and Yaroslav was given another surprise when Ingigerd presented him with another son named Sviatoslav in 1027 AD. So, things are going pretty well right now, I think. You know, the brothers Nobody's
0: naming Nobody's naming their kids Olga. Wait, isn't is it the equivalent Helgi something like that?
1: Um yeah, but they're pretty Slavic now nowadays.
0: Yeah, but what's the masculine equivalent of Olga in the Slavic? Oleg. Oleg. Okay. I'm uh, um, sorry, more people need to be naming their kids Oleg and Olga. Well, we'll get to it at some point. I think
1: it's around this time when we see Yaroslav appear in the
0: Scandinavian sagas. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Don't ask me which ones because I can't pronounce them.
0: Uh, tell me, send me them. I could probably say them. I will. I don't have them written down actually. So I will send them to you later.
1: In these sagas, he's known as Jaroslav the Lame, attributed to the limp with which he walked due to an illness he suffered as a child
0: and an arrow injury he attained in the battlefield. My God, it's always the Norse with the most brutal nicknames, like Ivor the Boneless. You know, it's not clear what boneless means to historians, but it's not, it's probably nothing good.
1: And the fact that he's Yaroslav the Lame because he has a (laughs) limp, like, come on. Very nice. Very nice people. This is, and actually his injury is actually corroborated by an examination of his remains in the modern era. So while he was in Novgorod, he is, uh, he received many a yarrow in search of refuge or employment. One of his most famous refugees were Olaf II of Norway and his son Magnus when they were fleeing from King Canute back in 1028 or 1029. Olaf remained in Yaroslav's court for a few years, but Magnus was raised among the Rus and remained a part of the court. So this is when we bring in the most famous person to grace Yaroslav's employ at all times. and This is a man named Harald Sigurdsson, who is more commonly known by his future name of King Harald Hardrada which means hard ruler. Harald Hardrada came to Novgorod as a spry young man in 1031, where he was made the chieftain of the men charged with the defense of the country, which is actually what it says in the Chronicles. And Hard was the brother of Olaf II, who arrived previously, hence why Harald was entrusted with such a position, and his military promise was more than apparent as well. And it's around this time when Yaroslav decided to retake the lost territories of Czernund, which Sviatopolk gave away to Boleslav, and he called on his brother Misislav for support. They combined their forces and marched towards Poland. With the death of King Boleslav of Poland and his weak son Miesko in charge, it was a perfect time for reconquest. The Rus entered Poland and quickly captured the towns of Cherven and ravaged the Polish countryside. He captured many Poles and settled them forcibly along the Ross River, which he used to make a series of towns in the defense of Kiev, During the campaign, Yaroslav's fourth son, Vsevolod, was born in 1031. Herod Hardrada was ever-present in Yaroslav's army and made quite a name for himself, and remained in the prince's service for a few years, even assisting in the conquest of the Chud tribe. With this conquest, Yaroslav founded the city of Yuriev, which is now the modern-day Tartu in Estonia. It's named Yuriev after Yaroslav's Christian name, which is George in English, or Yuri in Russian. Mm -hmm. And with a nice series of conquests on his western front, Yaroslav was quite content. Harold Hardrada departed from his service, heading off to Constantinople for more chances to increase his prestige and wealth. And this, I also want to add this little tidbit of people showing how much they trust Yaroslav. Because Harold Hardrada would actually send back his wealth, like his prizes, back to Yaroslav for safekeeping. And Yaroslav would actually keep it and not use it. Interesting. So he's a very honorable man.
0: So he's a trustworthy guy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Now, on the Misislav front, he returned to Czernigov with bad news. His son and only heir, Eustathius, passed away from an illness. Misislav was distraught, and to grieve, he went on a hunting trip. And on this hunting trip, he fell sick and passed away in 1036 AD.
0: Fell sick on a hunting trip. Sorry, nobody, nobody goes on a hunting trip and survives. Not here. <laughs> Except this is actually... Nobody in the
1: Chronicles says that this is Yaroslav's machinations. He, he actually probably did just fall sick. <laughs> supposedly. <laughs> With the death of the Prince of Chernigov, Yaroslav was now in charge of a fully united Rus. Would you look at that? Wow. And he didn't have to do anything. He didn't? No, his brother just died on a hunting trip. Supposedly. With the threat of his brother now gone, Yaroslav decided it was time to return to Kiev. He appointed his son Vladimir as his heir and the Prince of Novgorod, and during the festivities, he was told that the Pechenegs had taken advantage of the death of Misislav and went forward to attack Kiev. Yaroslav rushed south of his army and met them on the field, routing them entirely and ensuring that they would never be a threat anymore. However, he didn't want to deal with any of his final brother's machinations and ordered for his final remaining brother, Sudislav, to be imprisoned and tossed into a jail cell where the key was conveniently lost for quite a while. So... He has one brother left, and he is in prison now. All threats to his direct rule were now gone. Yaroslav decided it was time to make Kiev Rus the empire that it deserved to be. Taking inspiration from the grandiose nature of Constantinople, he was determined to elevate the authority that emanated from Kiev and the authority of him as a ruler. Yaroslav wanted to ensure that everyone would know that he was the prince, and to do this, he needed to bring reminders of the imperial authority granted to him. He imported Byzantine architects and masons and set them to work. He tore down the wooden palisades around Kyiv and replaced them with stone. Kyiv itself was greatly expanded during this endeavor. While Vladimir the Great had built on Sarokievskaya hill, became merely a small part of the northern defenses of Kyiv and the ramparts stretched southwards for a bit over two miles, enveloping an area of 70 hectares. The earthworks at the base of the, were up to 30 feet wide and up to 11 meters high the palisade topping it that brought up the total height to 16 meters. The ramparts also contained three different gate towers. There was the Jews' Gate in the southwest, the Poles' Gate in the southeast, both of which were probably just made out of wood, and the ever-famous Golden Gate of Kiev in the south, which was definitely made out of stone. All of these defenses not only protected Kiev from invaders, but also shielded the Poldiel area to the northeast, which is the oldest neighborhood of Kyiv and a birthplace of the city's trade, commercial, and industrial centers. It's found between the Kyiv hills and the lower stream of the Pochina River. Built up defenses around Kyiv, that's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. And he also diverted resources into building up his palace complex, which was greatly expanded to benefit his status. And he also changed the way the city was oriented. Uh, The landscape was changed entirely, both geographically and spiritually. No longer would his citadel be the center of the city, and he ordered for the Church of St. Sophia to be built away from his residence and be placed on the road south to the Golden Gate. So the Church of the St. Sophia or Church of the Holy Wisdom. The Church of St. Sophia became the Church of the Metropolitan, who was the head of the Kievan church hierarchy. And this church became the largest and most magnificent church in Kiev, replacing an old and wooden version in the old town. And this ensured that the former Christian citadel of Kiev, transformed into a Christian city, and the Church of the Annunciation of Christ was built on top of the Golden Gates. St. Sophia would also become the largest extant Byzantine church in the 11th century, and none would be seen or built again by the Rus for the next 500 years. So to compare this, this church would be considered, you know, noteworthy in Constantinople, but in Kiev, it looked more out of place. It was a strange and it was a powerful sight when approaching the city from afar when you saw it up upon that hill. With the construction of St. Sophia beginning, the Patriarch of Constantinople sent the first Metropolitan of Kiev over, who was named Theotemptus. He even used this as a chance to actively promote the cult of Boris and Gleb, and, you know, and thought of it as a mark of divine favor for having his family produce three saints, and, you know, both are the Rurikid name. He even posthumously had his uncles Yaropolk and Lieg baptized, And laid to rest in the Church of the Holy Virgin in the middle of his citadel. Or the Church
0: of the Tithes. So,
1: yeah, posthumous baptisms. How
0: about that? Yeah, that's really interesting. Because, like, religion has always played a role in uh, consolidating political power in, well, really, all of human history. Um, So, I find it really interesting that he had some of his, um, not ancestors, direct ancestors, but relatives be posthumously brought into the fold it's like he's i mean he's not only christianizing you know himself and the city and all of his territories he's christianizing the family the rurikid dynasty he's like um, even retroactively at this point
1: yeah if you remember correctly um these were the two brothers that vladimir was basically fighting with so Yaropolk was the one vladimir had killed and aliag was the one that Yaropolk killed
0: Mm-hmm. So there's that. Yeah, and no, no posthumous baptism for Vladimir, I guess. Because he's already been baptized. <laughs> oh, right. Duh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um,
1: with those churches built, he also ordered for the Monastery of St. George and a convent of St. Irina to be built in honor of the saints that both he and Ingigerd were named after. And this is just the beginning. Yaroslav had an avid love of religious establishments and was known to be devoted to priests and monks, but mainly monks. And he would devour books as much as he could, reading day and night. What a nerd.
0: <laughs> yeah. That makes sense because like, you know, the talking about monasteries picked my interest because okay, that's when we start talking about introducing literature into the fold. Oh yeah. Because you need monks to copy books. Well guess that's what they do all day long.
1: Oh yeah. So he even founded the first learning academies in Kiev and Rus. Yeah,
0: exactly. There you go.
1: And on that topic, you were just talking about the monks. He also ensured that the monks he had were able to read and write, since he brought books over from Byzantium and he set them to translate from Greek into Slavonic, or if the books were from Bulgaria, from Glagolithic Slavonic to Cyrillic. Or sometimes he'd just even have them copy books for the sake of spreading them around the princedom. The continuous history of native Christian literature can actually be traced back to the reign of Yaroslav. Nice. Yeah. So, nerd. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it's a good thing. I'm a nerd, so. I mean, yeah. I like books. I do too. And the laws were being written, quite literally. With Yaroslav's move to Kiev, he was made to reconfirm charters, as you mentioned earlier, to the Novgorodians. And he is credited for issuing the first written civil law code among the Rus, called the Ruskaya Pravda, or the Russian Truth, or the Russian Law, whichever one.
0: Um, I think Russian Law makes more sense.
1: Yeah, but like Pravda also means truth, so.
0: Yeah, but, you know, the meaning of words change depending on context.
1: It does, it does. Um, his original document is no longer with us, because it has been changed and edited by his successors over the years, but it became the generic name for princely rulings in the future. This modest innovation codified writing into the Kievan government, as his predecessors had not made any attempts to actually codify any of the laws, and despite having a Slavonic writing style already present since the reign of Rurik, thanks to St. Cyril and Methodius, with the Cyrillic alphabet. However, this does suggest that the Rus did have a structured language for civil law long before it was codified, but writing it down would ensure the standardization of this laws in the princedom as it confirmed and moderated customs within the nobility, and reminded his retainers that they needed to behave in certain ways to him and towards each other.
0: Also, like, I find that really interesting because prior to the introduction of books, literature, writing, um, written laws specifically, you know, oral traditions are far more fluid. I guess you could say, mm-hmm. like in like a you know a fairy tale passed down orally over and over. It's going to change over time naturally. Of course, like you know, like you said, laws um, change over time too. But this gives them more staying power.
1: It does, and then we also see the first church statutes appearing as well. So Vladimir the Great and Yaroslav are credited with this, but. You know, these statutes were not meant for canon law, but they were more so princely grants that were backed by canon law, and defined how much of a claim the church had over the lives and property of the common people. And this reveals more about authority than piety. So, there are three big innovations that we see from Yaroslav's statutes. Um, the first that we see is that the documents don't just list offenses, but they also list the, pe- the penalties associated with these offenses, which can range from restitution, a fine, or incarceration. The book, Emergence of the Roost by Simon Franklin, just lists Article 3 of the statute as an example, which covers the fines for rape. Quote, If someone rapes a boyar's daughter or a boyar's wife, then he is to pay five grivnas of gold for the dishonor and five grivnas of gold to the bishop. And if she be a daughter or wife of lesser boyars, then he is to pay one grivna of gold and one grivna of gold to the bishop. If she be the daughter or wife of common people... He used to pay 15 grivnas of fur to her and 15 grivnas of fur to the bishop. End quote. So you can see the classism in there, but it's codifying something.
0: Well, I was more interested in, um, in, in Norse society, there's something called blood money. A wergild. This is where the term comes from. Yeah, ver-guild. a A wergild. If you, yeah, if, yeah. If you killed somebody, one way you could settle is you could give the family of that person a certain amount of gold. Or money, whatever you want. And if you didn't do that, you might be outlawed, or they might choose to outlaw you anyway, which basically means anybody is allowed to kill you. And uh, that usually resulted people either dying or fleeing to the forest and living there until their outlawry was rescinded. And it's it's always fascinating seeing what kind of literal monetary price, not a metaphorical price, but a literal price people put on various offences. If you
1: recall, Vladimir the Great did remove the Wear Guild from society.
0: I don't recall that, but
1: Yeah, it was one of the things he did for laws is that mm-hmm. he recalled the Wear Guild.
0: And okay, sorry. And the restitution was only paid to the state and the church or the bishop, right? Not to the family or the victim.
1: For this one, it is paid for the person for the dishonor. So directly to mm-hmm. the person.
0: Okay. And so. then to the bishop. Yeah, again, that's I find that interesting because this is offense Not only towards the dishonor of the victim, but it's also an offense towards the bishop and the state also, right? Or just the bishop?
1: Just the bishop. So this is all the church statutes.
0: Right. Okay.
1: Yeah. So basically if you do something wrong, the church gets paid as well because you're breaking canon law as well.
0: Right. You know, I think, um, well, Foucault talks about this in the first part of Discipline and Punish. It's, his example was, is a, if a person committed a crime in, I, I guess it would be medieval France, when the ex- execution was still widely practiced, especially public execution, it wasn't simply that the offender had committed an offense against the victim. It was also that they committed a, an offense against the king himself, or in this case, the bishop. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, it's interesting because this is also like this is also ship from Varigild, which is only towards the victim, also towards the bishop. Mm-hmm. So any violation is a direct attack on the bishop as well.
1: more so an direct attack on God because that's what more so what it's going for because you know you're paying the mm-hmm. bishop as the you know the the hand of God in this situation.
0: And I yeah also I would like to point out the ways this could easily go wrong because this incentivizes the church to make more laws, and also have more money for the same offenses over time.
1: Well, wait till you hear the second innovation.
0: Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, this is why a lot of, like, underfunded police departments will ticket poor people over and over again. Same same thing, they're incentivized to do it, because it's income.
1: Well, secondly, the statutes make it clear that these fines weren't the only punishment someone could receive. The church could impose more penalties according to canon law, and the prince could punish the offender more if he really wanted to. And a third innovation made the church the main receiver of the fines, rather than a tithe, thus providing the church with a more of a stable income in a range of civil cases covered by the Ruskaya Pravda, such as arson, cutting someone's beard off, remember that one, guys, mm-hmm. and certain cases of theft. Oof, that was a long digression about the stuff Yaroslav did while back in Kiev.
0: No, I like this digression. I, I, I want to hear more about uh, medieval Rus' legal procedures, for sure.
1: Yaroslav did even more. <laughs> um, he set to work in Novgorod with his son Vladimir, and they appointed a Novgorodian man as bishop named Luka Gidiata, which the chroniclers like to mention he is of Jewish descent.
0: Ooh. Oh no.
1: <laughs> I know. Um, sadly, the wooden church of Saint Sophia in Novgorod burnt down in a fire.
0: <sighs> that actually sucks.
1: Yeah, but Vladimir requested the Byzantine artisans that were in Kiev and Yaroslav sent it to them, and they built a new one out of stone, but not as grandiose as the one that was in Kiev. You know, I've actually seen I've actually seen this church and been in it, so I actually have pictures of that one. Nice. Yeah.
0: Um, how original is it?
1: Pretty original. Like some fixings, you know, over okay. the years, like lots of conquest, but they kept it mostly intact. Together, the father and son duo worked to expand the western frontier when they attacked the Yatvingians, Mazovians, and the Yam tribe to secure the Gulf of Finland and their borders to the west. So the Yatvingians are Lithuanian, Mazovians are Polish, and the Yam are Finnish. Something's never changed.
0: <laughs> yeah. Russia going to war with Finland. What is it? A day ending on? why?
1: <laughs> However, all good things must come to an end, because news arrived from Constantinople. A disagreement had occurred between Byzantine and Rus merchants, leading to a large number of Rus to be killed within the imperial capital. Yaroslav's message to the Roman Emperor, Constantine the Ninth Monomach demanding satisfaction for the death of his merchants, and he was rebuffed. Hmm. He grew irate and sent Vladimir to lead a force against Byzantium.
0: Oh, yeah, sure. Send your kid.
1: I mean, he trusts Vladimir. It's his heir. And he has other kids.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He has other kids. Yeah, well, also, like... Lose one heir. It's fine. Just send it to the next
1: one. Yaroslav also, like, walked with a heavy limp, so he wouldn't be great on the battlefield.
0: I can't do... Ride a horse! Get a chariot!
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Vladimir placed Vishata as the second-in-command, and together they sailed down with a massive Rus flotilla numbering 10,000 men down the Dnieper River and across the Black Sea. The men departed from the exit of the Dnieper River, not taking notice of the red sky that morning, and they made their way down the coast. And there they encountered a horrid storm. The storm sunk ship after ship, even sinking Vladimir's own ship, but he was rescued at the last minute by Ivan Tvorimich, and he led the remainder of the flotilla from there. The storm took out many of their numbers, leaving only 6,000 troops and left them struggling to embark on shore close to Bulgaria. Constantine Monomach took notice and sent 14 Byzantine ships armed with Greek fire and a land force to greet the Rus. Vladimir placed Vyshata in charge of the army and took the remainder of the flotilla to lead the naval battle. Vladimir managed to unexpectedly repel the Byzantine navy leaving them battered and bruised, but Vyshat and his forces were broken and captured and taken to Constantinople as prisoners, and blinded. This was a major defeat for Yaroslav, and this was the only battle in this war, as Vladimir returned to Novgorod in disgrace. This would be the last route of any kind that we would see from the Rus against Byzantium. It took over three years for tensions to calm between Byzantium and Kievan Rus, but it did return to normal, as we have evidence of Yaroslav marrying his son of Sievolod to a Greek princess, a relative of Konstantin Monomach and trade privileges being restored. It also didn't take long for Harald Hardrada to return to Novgorod to pick up the wealth he had sent to Yaroslav for safekeeping, and word of his exploits had reached Yaroslav. With this newfound status, he agreed to marry his eldest daughter Elisaveta to Harald Hardrada.
0: Uh, just as a quick aside, um, if you recall from the Vladimir movie, which we reviewed on Patreon, it's terrible. Like Vladimir. <laughs> At one point, a petulant character says... We don't fight with the Romans. And as the Roman ships sail up the river, the Pechenegs got on their horses and rode off. And that's a lesson that I think uh, I think the younger Vladimir here could have stood to learn.
1: Well, it's been a few like years since that happened. So mm-hmm. you can't blame them.
0: <laughs> These guys always have short fuses, honestly.
1: Well, Constantine Monomach was also a weaker uh, Roman emperor. So it wasn't like, you know...
0: He thought he could have a chance, basically. Okay, but the Mongols took down Byzantium. The Turks did. Okay, the Turks. Never mind. My bad. But they only did so with cannons, right? Yes. Yes. So, they had to wait until a new technology was introduced to to fell the walls of Byzantium.
1: Well, Oleg almost did it with ships on wheels.
0: Okay, maybe it didn't have walls then. I don't know. Okay, it it has
1: massive walls. But... That aggression's over, because it was it's time for a marriage season. Nice. Yeah. So Yaroslav married his sister Dobroniega to Casimir of Poland, the you know the king of Poland, and his remaining daughters were married off. Anastasia was married to Andrew I of Hungary, and Anna was married to Henry I of France. Oh, Anna of Kiev. Nice. Yeah. There is talk of him having a fourth daughter named Agafia or Agatha whom he married to Edward the Exile while he was in King Andrew's court. Um, so this is Agatha. We don't know who it is. So there, it's this rumor that it may be Yaroslav's daughter. We're going to say it is because there's a picture of um, that we see in one of the frescoes of a church that shows like four daughters. So we're guessing it, this is Agafia.
0: So the tradition of extremely wealthy men marrying women from the Slavic lands goes back very far. Yes. <laughs> Donald Trump you're
1: in good company. <laughs> yep. As you so noticed his most famous daughter is Anna of Kiev, who you can totally learn more about as regent of France in Battle
0: Royale. Oh, she was regent. Okay. That's she cool. was regent of France, yeah. Oh, she's following in her uh, what great great grandmother's footsteps. That's cool. Oh yeah. Yeah. Anna's great. I guess we well, again will yeah. All three the brains of the family again.
1: Yeah, so out of three confirmed daughters, all three have become queens. For his sons, he married Iziaslav to Casimir's sister Gertruda, and Sviatoslav was married to a grandniece of Emperor Henry III, and Svyavolod, as we mentioned, was married to a Greek princess. In 1050, Yaroslav would not campaign with Casimir to assist his ally and brother-in-law in conquering and subduing more of the Mazovian tribes. They managed to corner the Mazovians, Prince Moislav, and killed him, making it easier to leave the Mazovians subjugated to the Polish ruler. Upon returning to Kiev, Yaroslav received horrible news.
0: Uh, horrible news. Um, a rattlesnake jumped out of the horse of, the skull of a horse. And, I don't know, uh, killed one of his heirs. Who knows? No. 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 His wife, Princess Ingegard, had passed away. Aww.
1: Yaroslav mourned intensely for the woman who had borne him four daughters and
0: six sons. Hmm. You think maybe having 10 children had anything to do with why she died? I don't know. Let's think about it.
1: I mean, she was still alive for a while, but she was pretty young. And, you know, the years passed and Yaroslav decided to break with tradition. He decided to sway the votes and have Ilarion appointed as the Metropolitan of Kiev. And you'd wonder, you know, people do this all the time. What broke the tradition? Well, Ilarion was Rus and was now serving in St. Sophia's. The Patriarch of Constantinople did not recognize Eladion as a metropolitan, and this may have caused quite a great anxiety within the Byzantine capital, because tensions between the Patriarch and the Pope were growing, and this break, with tradition, was seen as the shifting of power away from Constantinople. It's also seen as one of the leading causes of the Great Schism, if you've heard about that before?
0: No, I can't say I've ever heard of
1: it. Well, you can hear about it on Pontifacts when they get to it.
0: Uh... Uh, I feel like they're a long way away from it, aren't they?
1: About 200 years.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> so, a long way. As Yaroslav was relaxing in his palace, a messenger arrived from Novgorod with grave news. What do you think the news was this time?
0: Uh, Novgorod? Who's in Novgorod now? Vladimir? Yeah, Vladimir. What happened yeah. to Vladimir?
1: Well, Vladimir, you know, his son, his right hand man, his heir, died from a sickness. And Vladimir was buried in Novgorod's Church of um, St. Sophia in 1052.
0: Uh, did that one also burn down?
1: No, a, no that's a, the that's a, that's a stone one I was in.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. So you can see um, Vladimir's grave. So you can, if you can find it, yeah.
1: Usually it's like hidden behind walls
0: and all that stuff. But people know where it is.
1: Yeah. So this proved a bit too much for Yaroslav, who grew bedridden. He was already pretty advanced in age. And from time to time showcased his former vigor. But in early 1054... He called his remaining sons to his bedside. He looked at them and begged them to live in peace with each other, and then told them what they would inherit. Kiev would go to Izyaslav, and he would be their Grand Prince. Sviatoslav would receive Chernigov. Svyavolod would have Pereyaslavl. Igor would have Vladimir, and Vyakoslav would have Smolensk. He made them promise to not fight each other, to break the cycle of spilt fraternal blood, and instead work together. They agreed, both the fingers tied behind their backs. Yaroslav bid them goodbye, but Svevolod remained behind to stay with his father. They made their way to Vishgorod and while there, Yaroslav passed into the next life on February 19th, 1054. The funeral procession was done by Svevolod, who placed his father's body on a sled and brought it into Kiev, with a parade of priests singing hymns for the dead prince. The people mourned for Yaroslav, and he was laid to rest forevermore in the marble sarcophagus in the Church of St. Sophia. Yaroslav was 66 at the time of death. Now, would you like some trivia? Some trivia,
0: okay. I like trivia.
1: So here's the trivia: His sarcophagus was opened in 936 to observe the skeletal remains, and he was found to be in there with a female with a female skeleton as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and then in 1939, he was r- removed to be examined again, but was not documented as returned until
0: 1964. 1939. Oh, okay. Why were the Soviets so interested in his skeleton?
1: Well, what happened around 1939?
0: Uh, World War Two, Yeah. Were they were they going to use his bones to bless their battle against the Germans? Against the Jerrys?
1: More so because he was like, he's a very big, like, famed ruler. They didn't want
0: mm-hmm. the Nazis destroying it, so they probably removed it. They yeah, but he's safe. a king. Who cares? Are these good communists we're talking about or no?
1: I don't know. <laughs> well, however, it doesn't matter. It wasn't returned until 1964. Then, in 2009, they opened Sarcophagus again and found only one skeleton that of a female. Apparently, in 1964, the documents were falsified to hide the fact they had been lost. The questioning of the people involved in research and re- reinterment points to the idea that they were purposely hidden during the German occupation of Ukraine or were lost completely or stolen and taken to the US, where many ancient religious artifacts were placed to avoid mistreatment by the communists. So there's a lot of theories, but his bones are gone. We can still see a sarcophagus. Bones and all? I mean, not bones and all? No bones in it, but it well the woman's bones are in there, but not his. But it's still his sarcophagus. So, and that's the life of Yaroslav the Wise. Nice. Do you want to know why? Can you guess why he was called the Wise? Uh, because he was wise. I mean, yes, but what was the reason for it? He was wise. <sighs> okay, Brendan. I don't know why. Because he built many centers of learning. He propagated the faith and all that fun stuff.
0: Okay, basically cool. for
1: being a nerd. <laughs> I use that term very lightly, despite me knowing what it is, or despite me being one.
0: Anyways, are you ready to rank him? Yeah, I'm ready. Special operations. How well did they do in battle, lead in battle, or have others lead in battle for them? Um, okay, so battle. Let's talk about fighting. Let's talk about swords and shields. Let's talk about pointy ends. Yes. All right, so I guess in the first place, just going in chronological order here, he beat his uh, brother um, Sviatopolk, right? Yes. He be- okay. He beat him in battle. We know that. And
1: then he lost to Bolislav of Poland in the second battle. Yeah.
0: Okay, so he lost to Bolislav. Um, what else did he win?
1: Then he beat Sviatopolk again.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah, he beat Sviatopolk again. And
1: then basically he lost to Miseslav. Mm-hmm.
0: Was not Misislav the prince of Chernigov? Okay.
1: But um, and then. The Prince of Polotsk, Bratislav, he beat in a battle, like, peed him back into submission.
0: Yeah, but he was a gadfly.
1: Yeah, he was a gadfly. It wasn't that important. Um, but basically, he, he he lost, like, two battles. And then he won the, re- the rest of them. But then, you know, his son lost to the Byzantines. But more so because they weren't at full force and the weather did more damage to them than the Byzantines did. But his son beat the Byzantines navally, which is unheard of, but... His commander's yeah. army lost. So his son's commander's army lost. So it's like, that's a mixed boat. I think the, the Byzantine thing was just bad luck, honestly. Yeah. Um, and then he's also noted for being seen as the last great person to hire Varangian ma- mercenaries. And he did it consistently before the fading happened, you know, for the end of the Viking era. And he recruited famous people such as Harald Hardrada and everything under his service. So he knew how to recruit people. It was just, mm-hmm. he had bad luck a few times.
0: Right. I I feel like I just want to give him a middle of a road score. Middle of the road score. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, you know, out of 10... Well, he was only lost twice out of how many battles? Like... Like, a lot. Like, he, he did a lot
1: of conquering, too.
0: Okay, well, yeah, all that conquest, too. You know, I'll have to give him a higher score. And I'll give him an 8, I guess.
1: I was thinking the same thing. Because, like, you know, you can't blame... And then, you know, even the battle with slav they came to terms, like... All right, you know, we fought, you lost, but you're going to stay as Prince of Kiev. He didn't even lose his position. So it's like, that's something. Mm-hmm. So are you good for an eight?
0: Yeah, an eight is fine. Okay, that is a total
1: for 16 for Pensadene Alperazia, making him the highest ranker
0: in that, <laughs> in that now. Hmm. Yeah, that's a surprise. Yeah. Okay. Uspiech! Success! How successful were they in running their nation? What cultural significance did they leave behind? Uh, <laughs> a it, lot, everything. Yeah, <laughs> it's difficult to overstate. Um, in term first, off, in terms of success in running his, uh, running the nation. Oh, I I won't give him points for simply waiting out for <laughs> Sviatopolk to die and give him all of the Rus. So uniting the Rus was not was not an accomplishment of his. Um, because he didn't take it by force and he, or diplomacy or what have you. Oh, yeah, Mrs. Slav, rather. Yeah, so about well, the book was stone dead. My bad. So yeah.
1: Um, uh, see. he wrote laws down. Yeah, academies, down. monks, uh, monasteries, yeah. convents. I yeah. sent you pictures so, of the church he built. The mm-hmm. the yeah. the the brown one is like the model of like what it looked like.
0: Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he he established he, he, you know, wrote laws down for the first time. Um, that's a major step forward in civilization, um, yeah in terms of cultural significance, books he introduced literature, uh, written literature in a widespread way. He established monasteries so they could be produced and in cultural significance he built all of these churches, which many of which you can still see today
1: and I think the most important one for the realm he
0: had a succession plan, hmm yeah. That tends to help uh, stabilize things.
1: Oh, yeah. So he actually assigned his sons like their lots before he died. Then he died, and they went to their respective cities. So, like, he had so much done. Yeah. Like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> what are you giving um, him? <laughs> I'm giving him a 10. Same here. I, I, I saw this when I was researching this. I'm like, there's no way he's not getting the full marks in this. Like, come on. Yeah. Like... As I, as I showed you the pictures, like the second one, the colorful one is the one that's standing today. It's been refurbished quite a lot, but mm-hmm. you can still see it's still st- around to this day. Like, and like, it's the, it's the biggest church built in like roost for 500 years. So until, like, you know, someone I like else this comes on
0: one. I like this, um, this model one here a lot. I really like the architecture of it. It doesn't have too many like sharp spires, just very rounded tops. Very yeah. Rounded. That's the original like Byzantine Arches, version. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of this one. Um, to be perfectly honest, um, the colorful one.
1: Yes, that's the one you can see today. It has more of an influence of like you know the current like Orthodox Russian Orthodox Church on it, because um, stuff happens in Kiev in about
0: two hundred years that causes it to change for reasons. So yeah, I'm just not a fan of the color scheme. If you just made it all like one color. I'd probably find it very beautiful. Like, I find the first one very beautiful.
1: Let me show you the the one in Novgorod.
0: It's mostly one color. It's white and gray. This one bores me.
1: Yeah, but... Yeah.
0: Next one. Compromat. Blackmail. What things did they do behind closed doors, or outwardly, that made others dislike them?
1: Well, what can you think of?
0: Um, not a whole lot, to be honest.
1: Yeah, this isn't as round. I mean, I have a few things. Um... I mean, the first one, he rose up against his dad because he wasn't made heir.
0: Yeah, there was that.
1: Um, second thing is, um, he had the Novgorodian elites killed because they had they killed the Varangians. And the Novgorodians didn't like that, so mm. that made him seem... They had that coming. Yeah, they had it coming, but that's actually to the Novgorodians who he was in charge of.
0: Who cares what they think? Okay. Oh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's about what made people dislike them. I really don't care what they think. They had it coming. Yeah. Yeah. So, so far, well, actually, I mean, the Varangians, no, they had the good cause to kill the Varangians, I think, because the Varangians were harassing women, harassing people, stealing things, a kind of thuggery I dislike. Mm -hmm. So maybe, yeah, maybe they didn't have it coming.
1: Yeah, well, here is something I wanted to mention earlier, because you were like, Svealtapolk, why is he accursed? Well, here's the fun bit. Yaroslav may have secretly been behind the murder of Boris and Gleb. Whoa. Because in the sagas, he is mentioned as the one to send his Varangian force after his brothers to kill them in cold blood and take their territory, and Sviatopolk was the one trying to avenge them by trying to take out Yaroslav, only to get um, kicked out himself.
0: Interesting. Well, I know whose side the uh, sagas are on. He clearly liked his brother more than him.
1: Well, you get her. Th- here's the thing. Yaroslav was very nice to the church, and he was the he was the winner in that
0: battle. And what do winners get to do? Uh, I'm not going to say it because it's such a cliche. But <laughs> yeah, but, I see what you mean.
1: And this this is written by this is written by Yaroslav's descendants, or mm-hmm. this is written in the time of Yaroslav's descendants winning um, the throne. So, right. Basically, it's conjecture. We don't know if it's true or not. But if the Novgor, if the saga say that that Yaroslav may have been the one to blame. You know, it's it's food for thought. Um, otherwise, he's not really a bad person and just a massive nerd. Like, I, I don't, I don't, don't want to, I don't, you know, I don't know what to give mm. him. What do, what, what are you thinking?
0: Well, we don't know if the thing about him being behind his brother's death is true. So, uh, I you know I'll give him points for having a sissy fit and <laughs> going against his father. What was it for again? Not being appointed, not being made air, yeah. Not being made air, Yes, yeah, So you had a sissy fit over not being made air. Uh, his Varangian guards harassed the Novgorodians, so that's pretty bad. Um, I don't know. A four, I was thinking, giving him like a two <laughs>
1: one for the sissy fit, and one for the maybe killing his brothers. Like himself, sending
0: the murder out? I'm not going to count that, but the, again, the Varangians harassing Novgorodians and giving them, making them so angry that they killed them all, that's just being neglectful of your people, man. All right, I'll, make, I'll boost it up to a three. To a three. Uh, I'm, I'm just not saying more... you just, I'm not trying to argue, I'm just pointing out your like oh, No, no, no,
1: that's why I'm boosting it up to a three, because those are three valid points, but it's also like, mm. he didn't do anything that was dastardly or devious, honestly. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's not on the level of Vladimir the Great.
1: Oh well, that's a, that's a whole different level there, though. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, or Anne of Kiev.
1: Olga, Olga.
0: Oh yeah, sorry, Olga of Kiev. But again, we're t- you know, they. Well, I know for a fact they had it coming.
1: No, for sure. Alrighty, you ready for the next one? Bonjour, moi.
0: Oh my god! Basically, how good looking were they?
1: Alrighty, so here is the most contemporary image we have of them. Mm-hmm.
0: That's going to be a skeleton. <laughs> this is this barely counts as a picture of a human being like a, if you, oh bonjour moi and it's a smiley face <laughs> here's a here it is drawn okay yeah um i i cannot assign points to this i'm sorry okay i'm gonna need something more substantial how about this one There we go oh so saintly uh, he is a saint <laughs> um, the face he has as a saint is the most generic like, painting of a saint face I have ever seen. I have to say.
1: His his paintings are pretty... I mean, do you want the one that's on the money?
0: Um, yeah, sure, the money one. I'll take that. Oh, do you mean the coin? Or do you mean you're sending me a new one?
1: I'm, send, I'm sending you a new one. There's one where he's on, um... Where he's on, like, Ukraine's, like, grivneys.
0: So, I have no idea if this is an accurate representation. Are you sure nobody's, like, tried to reconstruct his face based on his, like skeletal features or his, his skull well
1: there's the issue of his skeleton
0: being gone uh so so now it's somewhere somebody has it
1: <laughs> no one knows where it
0: is okay um so yeah this is the most like least generic and human-like but he still has like an incredibly generic face like and i don't feel very strongly one way or another about this to be perfectly honest so you know i will give him a five for being completely forgettable I'm going to give him a five as well
1: because he is very much very generic looking in every portrait mm-hmm. he has. Wow, it's the first time we've matched in a while. Yeah. Min- min- minus, you know, Uspiek, because that, that doesn't count. <laughs> or come yeah. from, for, for, I mean, not even doesn't count. He's just high marks everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. Now it is time
0: for Vladichstva, sovereignty. How long were they on the throne? We don't rank this, it's just out of how many years Ivan the Terrible reigned.
1: Alrighty, so Yaroslav reigned from the fall of 1016 to July 22nd, 1018. I put 20, 2018, that would have been a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So fall of 1016 yeah. to July 22nd, 1018, and then remained in power from early 1019 to February 20th, 1054, leaving him in power for a total of 36.91 years for a total score of 14.69 out of 20.
0: That is uh, a very high score.
1: Yeah. He is beat. I think he is barely beat out by his dad Mm. for like 0.6. No, 0.7 points. Right. Like like 0.07 points. It's just barely. Alrighty. So that brings his total score to a whopping 67.69.
0: Wow. So that puts him in what place? Third. Wow.
1: Behind Olga of Kiev.
0: <laughs> yeah, and Vladimir the Greatest first, right? Yep. <laughs> it's still, I don't know, I still feel, don't feel ambivalent about that. <laughs> I mean, he, he was a
1: very horrible person and he did a lot of stuff mm-hmm. that Olga couldn't do.
0: But we set up the system so if you do horrible things, you get a lot of points.
1: Yeah, the more interesting you are, the more points you get.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Alright, so Brendan, it is time for the question. Does he get to party it out in the Kremlin or is he off to the
0: gulag? Uh I'm gonna send him to the Kremlin.
1: He goes to the Kremlin! Woo!
0: <laughs> There's something in my eye. Ow! Ow! Is that a tear? No. Okay, it's gone.
1: So, Yaroslav the wise. You were wise enough to be sent to the Kremlin. Now, did he? In- Here's the final. Qu- Here's the most important question. Did he inherit Olga's brain?
0: Did he inherit Olga's brain? I think so. I mean, you know, I-, I would say when I say Olga and the women are the brains of the family. Olga was an incredibly cunning person. If we are to believe everything that is recorded in the chronicles about her life as much as i'd like for all it to be completely believable i'm pretty sure a lot of it is legendary that said i think there is a distinction to be made between cunning and book smarts um and also really common sense and logical decisions when it comes to um ruling the kingdom you know that you know all these all these innovations about writing down laws um establishing monasteries and churches and establishing um, places where monks can copy books. So, I mean, in the end, indirectly, we have Yaroslav to thank for the entire corpus of Russian literature, indirectly. I know you like that, Roberto.
1: I do, I do, I very much do. Huh. So, Yaroslav, you get the Brendan approval for being... Big nerd. For being a big nerd and actually having some brains for once.
0: (laughs) Well, I won't say... It was very foolish of him to try to go to war against the Byzantines and really over I, nothing.
1: I think it was more of a raid. There was other, mostly it was got killed and the Byzantines wouldn't do anything about it. So he was like wanting well, to show, mm-hmm. show my strength. And then it, and then God was like, no, you don't. Cause he sent the storm mm-hmm. after them.
0: Right. Exactly. Is, you know, I, I, I understand his reasoning of why he had to do it. I don't think it was the best choice in retrospect because, again, you are going to war against the Byzantines. Yeah, never a good, never a fun time. Yeah. Well, are you ready for the poem?
1: This poem is called Farewell by Bela Akhmadulina, who is a Soviet and Russian poet, who Joseph Brodsky considered the best living poet in Russia. Or in Russian, farewell means proshanye. This is written in 1960. <laughs> Prošaj ljubi nebajzuja sum mashažu il vas hažu kave pieni i bezumstva kak ti ti prigubil pagibieli, nieve tam diela. kak ti ljubil ti pagubil no pagubil tak neumjela žeokas promaha on niett te be je prošenja i brodet videt billi svjet no tila majo oppusla. Ravotu maluju visok, Isho No pali ruki, Is koju, Sok uhadiat zapahji i
0: Farewell by Bella Akmadolina And in conclusion I will say, Farewell, don't pledge your love in vanity. My mind's away, or on its way, Towards the higher loss of sanity. How loved was I? You toyed with my mortality, That does not matter. How loved was I? You made me die, but you can make me die much better. Oh, brutal miss, you'll never be forgiven. Flesh is animated, it roams about, it can still see, except my body is vacated. The temple pulse still handles well. It's little work, but hands subsided, and like a flock, the sounds and smells take off, diagonally guided. Translated by Evgenia Sarkeesians.
1: Awesome. And since we're back, we also decided to add a new part to the show, which we're going to, which we're stealing from Spanish Arpada, and we call Re- recommendations just like they do. Mm-hmm. So, Brendan, what do you want to recommend this week or this time?
0: So, um, last week I was in Philadelphia to catch a show by Lightning Bolt, um, a noise rock band, and Lightning Bolt is a pretty bizarre band, which is why I like them but they had a couple of honors openers who were even weirder and uh uh i feel like evangelizing them um so these are two bands they are experimental electronic bands from providence rhode island and orlando florida respectively they are uh baby baby explorers whose spotify describes them as um let's see a parody of sound garage pump, future punk project from Providence, Rhode Island. They make simple, structured, danceable songs. I don't go to a lot of shows. Um, the vast majority of them are punk or metal of some kind. And these guys had the audacity to just be that weird for a mostly punk crowd that was there to see lightning bolt. And They were so much fun. They were some of the, probably one of the best bands I've seen all year. That is live. Didn't hear of them until Lightning Bolt brought them out to promote them, I guess. You know, but Lightning Bolt is also from Providence, Rhode Island. And the other band I want to talk about, Evangelize, was, again, one of the best shows that I've seen all year. Another experimental electronic band. Um, It's called Cabo Boing. And it's by this guy, Brian Esser, from from Orlando, Florida. Previously of a similar band called Yip Yip, which was a duo between him and a buddy. Um, They broke up a long time ago, and now he is doing Cabo Boing. And to give you an idea of what Cabo Boing um, was doing, um, he was the second act. The first act was a hardcore band, and Cabo Boing came out he had a little box with all these wires and thingamajig sticking out and he had like what looked like a guitar but i'm pretty sure it was some kind of guitar shaped MIDI controller which he used to control various parameters of what was happening and it was just an assault of weirdness also he had on a very colorful mask and if you look at his artist page uh, apparently without his mask he looks like a goofy guy with a bulk up cut in glasses i'm i'm pretty sure he cultivates that kind of uh image and it was a, he was a one-man show also so yeah um and just because i neglected to talk about what it was like um baby baby explores um was a three-piece and they had a singer they had a guitarist he was doing lots of really cool crazy stuff while the i guess bassist slash drummer was sitting in the back very very Like, desperately programming in different um, bass lines and drum beats. And uh, I can't evangelize these two bands enough. They were the best show I saw all year. Wow, that's awesome. I
1: should check them out sometime on Spotify then.
0: Yeah, they're both on Spotify. Um, Cabo Boing, C-A-B-O Boing. And Baby Baby Explorers is like all all lowercase, baby baby, one letter, underscore Explorers. Mm-hmm. And you can also Google them and you can find their website and stuff.
1: And we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I tagged. Um, I told Ben from Wittenberg to Westphalia that said these guys are also from Providence and they're really cool. But I don't know. He didn't he didn't respond. So I'm guessing he's just ignoring me. <laughs>
1: so I want to recommend watching Cyberpunk Edgerunners because I have finally started watching the show and I am in love. It is 20 minute bursts. It's an anime. Um, it's basically it's produced by CD project red with the Polish and Japanese writers. So they were kind of working together and I completely love it because I'm actually able to see like all the locations that I have seen while playing the game. So I can recognize different sites, different things. I'm learning more about the cyberpunk lore and this takes place about a year before the game starts. So it's a great introduction to see if you want to start playing the game. And it has a lot of, of amazing characters. I'm personally in love with Rebecca. She's a great character. Um, David Martinez, who's a main character, is also pretty awesome. And I have been obsessed with Cyberpunk for the last few days. And just, like, the whole aesthetic for me is great. So I really like how everything looks. And I've binged the game to near completion. So I highly recommend watching Cyberpunk Edgerunners. Now, mind you, do not watch it with any underage kids. So content warning on that uh, recommendation
0: yeah it's not a <laughs> it's not a kid show just because it's animated
1: yeah there is a lot of sexual themes and mm. you can actually see it a lot of nudity so, a
0: lot of sex a lot of incredibly gory violence yeah which so but, i enjoyed it's great um yeah, yeah. but
1: you know just for those who are you know don't want the kids seeing that don't don't let them see that but otherwise if you're an adult feel free to consume it if it's your thing I recommend it. So
0: there we go. Nice. I should also point out if this was made by Studio Trigger, whose like biggest um, shows were Kill a Kill. I love Kill a Kill. Darling in the Franks and um, also another one. Um, they contributed to Star Wars Visions, which I also loved.
1: Yeah, basically it's a great company with great animation styles. So, And mm-hmm. the theme music is Fire by Franz Ferdinand, which you oh, can't beat.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I yeah. was
1: like... I recognize the song, and it's like, oh, that's Fra-, and I saw the alert, like, oh, it's Fred. Fred, like, holy crud! Like, this is something new for me to listen to.
0: Yeah, huh. I should also point out uh, one of my other favorite bands actually contributed a, son- a song to um, both the soundtrack of the anime and um, Cyberpunk 2077, the game. Um, that is the Armed, and they contributed uh, "Night City Aliens," which is a great song, great band.
1: So. Basically, you get music recommendations from Brendan, and you got a show recommendation from me. Everything will be in the show notes. I'll just put the name for Cyberpunk Edgerunners, because if you have Netflix, just look it up on there. If you do it through other means, it's up to you. I'm not judging. But if you want to get more direct contact with us, feel free to access our website at zarpowerpod.weebly.com. There you can find the show notes, pictures, bibliography, and vote on whether you think Yaroslav deserves the Kremlin or the Gulag. It's obviously the Kremlin. But come on, guys. It also has links to our social media, which is just at czarpowerpod, czar spelled T-S-A-R. If you'd like to support the show to help us expand and grow, feel free to subscribe to our Patreon to get access to bonus episodes for both czar Power and the history of Sarkovilla, Georgia. We have an Amazon book wishlist, PayPal, and coffee. And if you'd like to do something that's free, leave a review on your favorite podcast host, be it on Apple, Spotify, Podcast Addict, yada, yada, yada. We'll get all of them. And that's a dosvidin tavarishi from me.
0: And for me, vlož prozdejet parazitov. See you next time. Bye.